Welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer, and today my co-host, Dr. Reed Robison, and I explore if and how psychedelic medicine might make one more psychologically flexible. We discuss what psychological or cognitive flexibility means, how it's implicated in mental health, how psychedelics influence psychological flexibility, the concept of entropy applied to the brain, and much, much more. If you like the show and you want to know how to support us, here's how you do it. Give the show a rating and a review in places like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you're watching us on YouTube, you can like the video or share it with a fellow traveler on this winding and ever-branching path we call life. If you're interested in getting top-tier training in psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, you can head over to numinous.com, that's N-U-M-I-N-U-S.com, hover over the services text up in the upper-hand corner, and click on practitioner training to see our case consultation group, harm reduction, and fundamentals of psychedelic-assisted therapy courses. Without further ado, here is our conversation on psychological flexibility and psychedelic medicines. You know, Reed, one of the things that impresses me the most about you, and there are a lot of things that impress me about you, what? is your ability to bend. <laughs> you are oh. one of the most flexible 40-something-year-old men that I've ever met. You know, it's attributable to your your long and arduous yoga sessions. You've been doing yoga for how long? Less than a decade. Really? Yeah. But well, thank you. I have seen you put your leg behind your head, which is something I don't even think my children can do. Um and, you know, I am quite the opposite. <laughs> my body's very, very inflexible. And I was told by a physical therapist once that flexibility in and of itself doesn't make you like injury resistant. I mean, it can help you from avoiding pulling things, but it's, it's sort of strength and flexibility at the same time. Yeah, it's that balance. Because if you look at uh, like ballet dancers, for example, um, there's a risk if you get too flexible without adding muscle around the joints. Mm-hmm. Um, that are protective and stabilizing, then like you see a lot of hip dislocations or injuries. I've seen that in, in yoga circles too. If people are not balancing the stretching with some kind of strengthening, right. there's there's uh, an injury waiting to happen. Right. Yeah. So why the hell am I talking about Reed's ability to <laughs> bend and be flexible? I think it's a good metaphor for the topic we chose for today, and that is psychological flexibility and yeah. inflexibility. You know, I was on a panel the other night. You were there. Yeah, was <laughs> and, awesome. You did a great job. And, oh, thanks. Um, and I saw you on the news recap, uh, your bald shiny uh, head. <laughs> and glowing self um, yeah. as the camera panned. But um, when I was thinking about that um, panel discussion heading up there about psychedelics and how do they work, um, I came up with two main ways. And one of them is... Cognitive flexibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like when we've, when we've taught this concept before, either in workshops or whatever, uh, we often cite Robin Carhart Harris and his rebus model and also the sort of the entropic brain theory. So do we want to cover those real quick for our audience who might not be familiar with those two things? Let's try. Those are mind benders. I love, yeah. uh, I love trying to put words on or to F the ineffable <laughs> concepts. <laughs> Right. So the, the rebus model, relaxed beliefs under psychedelics and R E B U S is sort of a, he had to torture those words to get that acronym, but you know, 
more power to him. This idea that psychedelic medicines, compounds, metaphorically speaking, heat up the brain, right? They, yeah. they, they move it into a more neuroplastic state. Plastic meaning not like the plastic toys you played with when you were a kid, but malleable. Plastic's a decent example or metal. Like mm -hmm. if you heat it, um, you can bend it without breaking it, just like our bodies in a sense. So like it's a very literal thing when I go into a yoga class. Like yesterday I had, I went to an early morning practice like not a class, but an open kind of practice. I I only left myself half an hour. So I was like, I don't know if I'm going to get to backbending, like doing those wheel, like really bending the spine, because I'm not going to go there unless I'm warmed up, heated up, because I know from experience I might injure myself. Right, and we literally use the phrase warm up. Like yeah. before an exercise, you warm up. Try to get blood flow to the area, get the tissues lengthening so that we don't overstretch them and injure them. Yeah, there's something about the, well, the the heat, the fire of your practice that makes things malleable, mm -hmm. right? Uh, both in your body and in your mind, I think. Right. Uh, so um, psychedelics do these things in the brain that allow it to be more plastic, more yeah. malleable. Psychoplastogens is one term for psychedelics, which yeah. I kind of find fun. That's a cool term. Yeah. 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 So with the idea that you heat up the brain... So we're not stuck in these like rigid patterns anymore. And so you can actually shape them consciously. And then as it cools, those new patterns become the new default in a way, if right. you practice them, if you integrate. Yeah. And I guess we should make, make it clear that we don't think, and you could tell me if I, maybe I'm wrong <laughs> about this. We don't think the brain is literally heating up like the temperature of your brain tissue isn't increasing necessarily. You might get blood flow in certain areas and not others. Connectivity yeah. between certain areas that normally talk, but that's a. I'm glad you brought that up because it's that's definitely true, and it points to this other way of looking at it of um, entropy or brain criticality, which is the part of it that's a little bit hard to understand. There's this theory in neuroscience that um, that psychedelics uh, enhance this this criticality or this, um, this uh, amount of entropy in the brain that is just the right amount to function optimally without pushing it over the edge. Um, there's this like this uh, idea from physics that's observed in galaxies and like how forest fires or viruses spread or how traffic patterns unfold that we see in the human brain too of you get these pockets of spontaneous brain activity that are kind of asynchronous and um, entropic that are actually organizing themselves in a smart way. It's crazy mm -hmm. to think about, but, um, and that's what, when psychedelics came along and researchers discovered, well, they've been always around, but when researchers finally imaged um, and saw that we found a state that is actually bringing brain criticality higher or the good kind of entropy higher, it's mind-blowing because we were just seeing the states before that were sleep, a coma, like um, normal waking consciousness where those are just kind of normal or lower. So it's it's this whole new um, like world to explore of neuroscience. Right. Right. And so we extend or extrapolate from what's happening in the brain, the neuroscience of it, to psychologically, phenomenologically, behaviorally. 
and we see that these higher entropy, entropy states are states of high flexibility. Yeah. And it can be desirable or undesirable, right? High flexibility. I've heard one person say, it's important to have an open mind, but not so open that your brains fall out. Right? Yeah, so that you we need a little be, ego. <laughs> exactly. We can be so flexible that we get things like schizophrenia or you know psychotic disorders. Mm-hmm. And on the other end of the spectrum, rigidity that... You know, sometimes we want to have some rigidity, but too much rigidity and we get things like, like you said, coma, anesthesia, or uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, or an eating disorder, or ruminative depression. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a fascinating idea, but it helps explain why psychedelics have this trans-diagnostic benefit, meaning they could help someone with OCD and someone with depression or binge eating disorder where it's under control um, versus over control. I mean, there, there are still some kind of rigid patterns at play, like the patterns in under, in under control disorder still can have some rigidity roots. Um, but in general, yeah, the over control conditions, you have these rigid patterns you want to melt. Um, and the under control, you're kind of already... Um, you have that loose control, but psychedelics help restore balance in the middle. Yeah. You know, I think about this concept as it, as it's applied to psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, I think about the different kinds of therapies that, um, are being applied either in the research setting or just as people think about how they want to do psychedelic assisted therapy. And one of them is act acceptance and Mm -hmm. commitment therapy. And one of the, the central, I guess, tenets or principles of ACT is this idea of psychological or cognitive flexibility. And that with the theory being that when people aren't doing well psychologically, it's because they are inflexible psychologically. Mm -hmm. And that to be inflexible psychologically in one way is to be jerked around by your urges, your cravings, uh, the thoughts that pop into your brain and the feelings that pop into your nervous system. And that to be more flexible is to observe, is to kind of take one step back from the phenomenology of consciousness yeah. and be more proactive instead of reactive. And psychedelics arguably help a person do that. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, another example besides ACT that I've seen target this kind of thing is uh, radically open DBT. Mm. It's often used in anorexia nervosa as a classic disorder of over control. And I like to pair, like when working with CAP, ketamine assisted psychotherapy with anorexia, I like to pair ketamine with some therapies like that, that really go for the rigidity because mm-hmm. you have this psychedelic that quote unquote heats up the brain or, or opens a window of malleability, plasticity. And then you go with the best uh, approach you have to um, shape it in a good way or shape it while you can. Yeah. yeah. You know, I have an example of this radical openness in a, in a ketamine client, um, that I saw recently where this person described their ketamine experience being a close encounter with the God inside of them. And mm-hmm. they were, they were talking about being in the sort of this last episode, we discussed the inner healing intelligence, right? This, this idea that there is a there is a being, an existence, a quality inside us all that if we uncage and unfetter, uh, will guide us toward healing and wholeness. So this this client of mine's describing, and I'm changing some details here for confidentiality's mm-hmm. sake, but is describing almost like a defragging of their consciousness. So they're uh, they're they're in this 
I'm closing my eyes as I'm picturing this. <laughs> like they're they're in the seat of of the God within, as they refer to it as, and they're noticing all the beliefs and the thoughts and the feelings and the urges that come are so easy to see for what they are. Mm-hmm. They're just labeling, oh, that's a judgment. Or, oh, I'm noticing, like, I wish somebody was here to see me like this. Oh, okay, that's a social desire. And and they're just picturing themselves swatting these things away easily as mm. they sit in the eternal now and, and open compassion and accept, unconditional acceptance of this God within. And I thought that was wow. such a cool way of describing this psychological flexibility of like, nope, I see it, but I'm not going to react to it, swatting it away. I love that. You know what it makes me think of is this concept of equanimity mm. or like that brings about some unflappability, if that's even a word. Yeah. But, um, like there's this mindfulness teacher I like, um, Shinzen Young, who talks about mindfulness as a Mindfulness being one of these desirable qualities of presence and and openness and flexibility, um, but he describes it as a three-legged stool where you have um, attention, you work on your attention, you work on your sensory clarity, and the last part of it is equanimity because if you start to pay attention to things and get clear about like tuning in, if you don't have equanimity, it's overwhelming. It blows up in your face. It's like someone triggers you and you explode. But if you have equanimity, AKA the ability to slip into that observer state or that flexible state and like be like a willow tree or something and and flow with the changes of life, then that's when you can, you're like surfing through life instead of falling flat on your face every time there's a bump in the road. Right. Yeah. Yeah, So I'm thinking about the times in my life, the moments in my life where I don't have that equanimity, when I'm not Equanimous or whatever. Yeah. Um, it, it's they are when I am believing everything I'm thinking. Right? Mm-hmm. There's the old cognitive therapy phrase: "Don't believe everything you think." Yeah. Uh, so I'll have a thought and I'll be like, "Oh, you know, maybe I'm. I don't know. I'll make one up. I'm, I'm unlovable, and I'll just believe it because it occurred in the, you know, the frying pan of my consciousness." Uh-huh. And sit with it, and then, but when I'm when I'm in a more equanimous state, I can I can, as I said before, just like see it for what it is. Oh, this is a this is a mind virus, or <laughs> this is a this is a story that I learned yeah. based on some childhood event or some kid who bullied me when I was six. I don't need to keep it. Yeah, and there's one other random, slightly related thought that comes up as you're talking about the inner healing intelligence, mm-hmm. the whole idea of the entropic brain and brain criticality comes from the physics world where I think it was like 30 years ago, uh, there was a seminal paper in physics that described these self-organizing states of the perfect balance of entropy and, and order. order. Yeah. Um, but it used as an example avalanches. And I think the easier example is sand and an hourglass like you have this hourglass we like those in psychology and psychiatry the therapeutic hour oh there's my tax accountant calling should i answer it (laughs) speaking of entropy yeah and order hello just kidding (laughs) i I won't um that'd be fun though embarrassed yeah the uh so an hourglass you have sand on the top as it as it falls down it starts to pile up into a little hill and then as the hill gets big enough Sand's going to fall to the edge, but it's not like the whole thing collapses and cla- and flattens. You you kind of you don't know where the sand's going to fall or if it even will for sure, but you do know that the hill is going to self-organize enough to keep 
becoming a hill mm -hmm. because it, ha it will do these mini avalanches, mini spots of chaos in the order to make the order. That's yeah. really, I've never heard that description. That makes total sense though. And the hill, the, the mound is fairly uniform. Yeah. Right. It doesn't tend to, if we're looking at a classic hourglass, it doesn't tend to all pile up on one side of the hourglass, right? You have this fairly uniform peak. Yeah. So it's like, uh, I don't know, it's like machine learning mm -hmm. <laughs> and well, it's non-artificial intelligence, but we have this inner healing intelligence in us, like how we heal, how mm -hmm. we self-organize to heal a cut or scrape, but also how the universe has this, uh, kind of balance of uh, order and chaos as, um, you know, whether you're looking at the planets or whether you're looking at uh, electrons whirling around a nucleus inside and, you know, the collisions of atoms within us and how it's all like um, all this crazy stuff going on at work underneath the surface that actually goes into helping us navigate life as conscious beings and heal and grow. It's kind of wild. This is triggering all kinds of thoughts in me. <laughs> How dare you trigger me? Um, so, you know, <laughs> human beings are made up of the same molecules as everything else, right? We, we, we are stardust. We were forged in the heart of, of dying and birthing stars. I think I heard that in a Sarah Blondin meditation yesterday oh, on, really? on Insight Timer. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, we're, we are physics in motion. And mm -hmm. consciousness is this weird phenomenon of the universe being self-aware. Um, and you hear, and I, you, you've, if you're longtime listeners to this podcast, you've heard me be skeptical. That would be a, a charitable way of saying it to the people who claim to understand physics and motion as it applies to psychology, that we're, we're quantum beings and you can affect vibrations and vibrations are tuned to this particular type of emotion, blah, blah, blah. I don't know that we have that kind energy. of energy. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that we have that kind of precision in our knowledge to be able to make those conceptual leaps, but I'm thinking about uh, what's been most helpful for me and many of my clients related to our topic. Um, and that is when we try to resist what is, that's when we suffer the most. Yeah. So, you know, we're trying to resist basically physics, the laws of physics as they manifest in a human consciousness. No wonder it causes psychological friction. No wonder it causes us to suffer because we're resisting what is. So maybe, you know, the ancient yeah. teachers thousands of years ago, the Buddhas and the Jesuses of the world were onto something. I think so. Like, in fact, I was just uh, listening to a book I like and revisit now and then by Jack Cornfield after Ecstasy the Laundry. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a part in there that stood out to me is that all of our spiritual practice prepares us for transitions in life. The ability to navigate transitions like is is a kind of a marker of progress in one's practice, like meaning life is full of change. Um, people come and go, seasons come and go. If we resist that the seasons come and go, we're kind of in trouble because they do come and go. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, that's a concept I've had to return to many times and I've found in, in many books by good teachers. I'm, yeah. I'm listening to uh, Singer's new book, he oh, wrote cool. the the untethered soul. Yeah, it's a uh, classic. And he wrote he just came out with a new one, like beyond untethered. I can't remember exactly what it is. Um, yeah, is it good? It's good. It's more of the same, but it's it's the same principles that are timeless principles. Yeah. Become the looker. Yeah, <laughs> and I slip into that that awareness seat yeah. uh, rather than being caught up in your own thoughts that um, might trick you. 
Yeah. I got to tell you, it's one of the most obnoxious things about Sam Harris's waking up course. <laughs> <laughs> the, the meditations where he says, okay, now turn attention on itself and look at the looker. And I'm always like, wait, what? <laughs> uh, maybe that, that frustration is part of the exercise, of course. Yeah. I, I get it conceptually because uh, I understand, you know, at least understand enough the mindfulness principles. But man, that is a weird thing to try to do. Yeah, I like how Singer describes it, though, is like, uh, yeah, you're slipping into that witness state, um, observing your thoughts from outside of your mind. Um, and in yoga, because you brought it up, and I'm going to take that carrot and, and go down um, go down that path, is you know, like the yoga sutras will tell you that somewhere along your path, your practice, the seeker becomes the seer, and you realize that you know, you are the path and the journey, the journey is the destination and we are all, you know, everything is a practice. Right. You know? These are the kinds of things that people say after a psychedelic experience, by the way. <laughs> yeah. These are the types of insights that, that, that this, uh, heated up brain on psychedelics tend to arrive at that, you know, we are one with everything let's go hug a tree. Let's go hug our kids. Um, it doesn't make sense to be violent. It doesn't make sense to be judgmental to ourselves and to others that us being the path, accepting what is in the moment. It's no accident that psychedelics are being researched to treat mental illness because we think a lot of what causes mental illness or mental health conditions or just psychological suffering is an attachment to the opposite of these insights that we need to be in control, mm -hmm. that we need to be in judgment of ourselves and to be perfect and to change who we are. And you know what I think is a, as a worthwhile disclaimer to throw in is that, uh, cause I've, I got a call recently from an old friend who, um, needed some help with their kid who had just become an adult, but was exhibiting some psychotic, uh, traits, symptoms, mm -hmm. uh, and had used a lot of cannabis and a lot of psychedelics. And um, it just brought up the fact, it was a reminder to me that uh, that the psychedelic experience is similar in some ways to the psychotic experience. Mm -hmm. And that state of entropy, while valuable for shaking things up, is really only helpful if we can land back on planet Earth. Mm -hmm. um, and we have the right um, set and setting and even neural dynamics and um, other forces to help us ground and put ourselves back together because there is a sense of self needed, a self-representation to navigate the world. Like we've talked about before, mm -hmm. like the Zen teachers say, you need enough ego so you don't get hit by a bus. I'm really glad you made that caveat. Um, I think a lot of people who listen to our podcast are people who are interested in the psychedelic medicine field, um, you know, coaches, but also people who just are psychonauts or interested in mental health generally. And as excited as I get about psychedelics, it's important to make those wise caveats that, you know, the container within which the psychedelic experience happens really, really matters for the outcome. So you mentioning set and setting support, you know, community support. Integration, like the way I look at it is um, the people who are doing big psychedelic journeys really often, um, there's a risk there of not um, grounding, not having time to piece yourself back together. There's even a risk of ego inflation mm -hmm. if unchecked, right? Like if you're thinking of 
like break down the ego like a muscle and like you've got to put it back together in a thoughtful way <laughs> or like and not flex it into uh, like a grandiose state um, with pieces of it like gone that were actually useful to navigate life. I think the psychedelics today folks just interviewed a person about this phenomenon oh. of ego inflation as a result of psychedelic experience. You know, sometimes we call psychedelics these non-specific amplifiers. We, we didn't come up with that term, but um, that they make you more of who you are to some extent. And so if you go in there with inflated ego structures, sometimes you'll you'll have an ego death and it will be just mm -hmm. what the doctor ordered, but sometimes it might not, especially if you do what you just described, this spiritual bypassing cycle of coming out of a psychedelic experience, not taking the time uh, to integrate, to land back in yeah. consciousness in the real world and revisiting psychedelic space. Yeah, it could be a recipe for disaster. These are just tools and they can be used for technically for good and e or evil in, right. in a sense. Um, I know that's a bit black and white, but, but they're tools and the intention matters or the, the energy that you amplify matters. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think that is a good disclaimer, but, um, but yeah, it's also really a, an important concept to, to think about. You've got to lose yourself to find yourself and you can do that through a psychedelic experience. But when you lose yourself, you need to have, you need to be held so you can come back from it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that you can put the pieces back together. Hopefully, along the lines of our topic, you know, psychological flexibility, it helps you be super flexible so that when it cools down, you can then remodel your consciousness in a way that suits you better. Um, that book, by the way, I just looked it up, Living Untethered, Beyond oh, cool. the Human Predicament by Michael A. Singer. Yes. Untethered. There's even, this is totally unrelated, but I'm just remembering that on the topic of brain criticality or entropy, like spontaneous asynchronous brain activity popping up. They've seen it now on psychedelics through brain imaging, but even with ketamine, like I didn't realize until this study that the term ketamine dreams, like there's a book called Ketamine Dreams and Reality mm. that uh, is kind of a classic and people use that term, but ketamine dreams is a phenomenon that they've measured on brain imaging by seeing these patterns that show up kind of spontaneously um, during the ketamine experience that we see in the ketamine room during mm -hmm. integration and people telling like, whoa, that was weird. Or I just saw the weirdest thing like, uh, like you were just describing yeah. from your client. Um, and there is a, a mechanism for that. And you're like, you're shaking up the snow globe in a way. And, um, and it can be, uh, yeah, it can be beautiful. Um, with the right like preparation and landing. Mm -hmm. Speaking of dreams and ketamine, I had a super weird ketamine dream last night. Uh, Not that I was on <laughs> ketamine, but a dream that involved ketamine. So I dreamt there were many chapters to this dream, but this one selling it for this conversation, um, that I was doing a ketamine session with the character Homelander from this Amazon show, the boys, which Ooh. is a hyper violent superhero kind of dark superhero <laughs> show. I enjoy it, but this is not a recommendation for you to see the boys if you're squeamish, but uh, it's also a good political satire. But anyway, so Homelander is kind of this anti-Superman character, super powered, but sort of evil because he was, he's got mommy issues. <laughs> um, 
That's, at least that's the premise. Issues. He's got mommy issues. Wants to be loved, but is also just socially inept. So in this dream, I give Homelander an injection of ketamine and then I oh. get an injection. And I'm like, wait a second. So he and I are sort of tripping on ketamine and we're not doing what we're supposed to. Again, this is a dream, folks. So we're walking around like a county fair and I'm trying to keep Homelander from killing people and like stealing stuff. But I'm also a little out of it. So if we finally get back to the, the clinic where we're supposed to be and these nurses are trying to help me get down into like a hospital bed, but they're, all the beds are taken. Anyway, typical dream stuff. Any of you psychoanalysts <laughs> out there want to email me and let me know what's wrong with me. Please do. Yes. <laughs> please please mm. do. Ketamine dreams with Homelander. That's cool. Yeah. It was fun. Huh? Well, yeah. Anything else about psycho? I mean, I'm sure that we've covered it exhaustively. We've but, covered uh, it all. So I don't think we've really fully um, talked about the term or concept of ego dissolution and how it relates to this. Mm. Like, um, we hear about that a lot, and there are a lot of ways to put it. Uh, but I like ego dissolution. There's even an ego dissolution inventory now, that you, a questionnaire that we'll give in research studies. But, um, but you know, I find it fascinating that like classic psychedelics, especially with their 5-HT2A receptor activation and this like this change in brain connectivity, that it it really hits these hot spots of the default mode network which is kind of this brain network representation of our ego and self-image and and it hits it in, in an important way because it helps you have a mystical experience and see that like the force from the trees and that unity and um, that have that transcendent moment um, and bring it back but it also hits those patterns of rules or mm. like conditioned beliefs like I have to do this or false identities we take on um, so I just wanted to draw that bridge as well when we're talking about uh, um, the uh, entropy and the and bring in the obliteration of our egos. <laughs> right. Yeah, you mentioned the default mode network. That's um, you'll often hear that term used when describing the effect that psychedelics have on consciousness. And the the idea, I think, as you stated, that the the default mode network, this network of brain regions that's active when when the ego has control, is important. Like we've been yeah. talking about, ego is important. We need it in order to be the apex species on the planet, self-conscious, you know, apes with clothes that we are. But <laughs> it, it, uh, when it is captured by a negative belief and rigidly held, that's when we get into trouble. And psychedelics or meditation, flow states, they usually involve a quieting or a lower activity in this default mode. Quiet the mind and the soul will speak. Mm. It's just a, a yoga quote I like. I could too. And you can do that through a lot of different ways. It doesn't have to be psychedelics. Like the yeah. meditation, contemplative practices, um, all sorts of, of uh, yeah, both spiritual and, and other, even flow state type practices um, can make space for that. Um, and psychedelics do tend to be this crash course in it or accelerated way or way to get into it, especially these days when we don't have as many uh, like spiritual walks up the mountain um, for whatever reason. Right. Yeah. And like we've quoted Jung a couple of times on this podcast with reference to this phenomenon in psychedelics, him, when he said, beware of unearned wisdom, um, the shortcut to ego disillusionment, uh, it can be really, oh, yeah. really helpful. Like we said before, though, 
it can be also be really, really destabilizing and without yeah. support and context, um, it's not always really therapeutic. Yeah. I would, I would not be able to navigate psychedelic, uh, ceremonies, journeys, experiences in the way I can or have been able to without a decade of meditation practice and, a and a hell of a lot of yoga, just per personally for me. I know that's, that's brought about some much needed flexibility in the journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you got to do your work. You got to do your work. I, I reposted this meme on my Instagram account from the, oh, yeah, the Instagram page, DMT World. And it's that, you know, guy turning away from his girlfriend to look at the woman walking by. And it's the guy turning away from psychological help to psychedelics. Um, and I posted something about, you know, they don't do the work for you folks. And as, as excited as I am to have started a podcast called Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, they are a tool, like you said before. And the hammer won't build the house for you. Yeah, if anything, like for some, it might be a carrot that dangles them to the work. And at the uh, the pot of gold, the end of the rainbow of that work, some it's the accelerator, the much needed uh, blast or some the dynamite to clear the obstacles in the way of the work, the way mm -hmm. shower. But uh, but yeah, there's they're not the substitute for the work, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, I think of... The way that uh, ketamine in particular, because that's the one I, I get to work with clinically, has helped my clients, It's a lot of it's this psychological flexibility thing that we're talking about now. Uh, it's helped them connect with mindfulness, what mm -hmm. it actually means and feels like to be in a mindful state in a way that's, you know, you don't have to do 10 years of meditation to achieve. But then meditation, for example, becomes the integration tool. Let's, let's yeah. now... As I've said before, follow the breadcrumbs back to this state of consciousness by doing the types of things in your normal day-to-day -day experience that get you there so that you can, mm -hmm. we use the term integration so that you can integrate the insights, integrate the brain states, integrate the phenomenology yeah. into your day-to-day -day waking experiences. Yeah, well said. Well, thanks, Reed. Thank you. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen or watch. Also, if you're feeling generous today, please leave us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks again. Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by Numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.